morning. How is everyone? You doing well? Surviving the rain? A couple people. I don't know. I saw some people coming in soaked head to toe uh, this morning, but uh, good to have you in church. Um, today, it's going to be a great day. It's already been great. So awesome to be able to worship Jesus together and uh, really looking forward to all the rest uh, that God has in store for us this morning. And um, I'm using a new microphone today. I'm using this little uh, Britney Spears microphone today. So uh, first time ever. So uh, we, hopefully it goes right. I, I'll say this. The reason that Victoria's microphone was not working is because of this microphone. There was some weird thing going on. So don't blame her. Blame me. But also, I was just standing out in the lobby before with this microphone on. And Anna Lovisa came up to me. She would have, she's one of our welcome team members. And she's like, oh, it's a cool microphone. Make sure you don't burp while you have it on. And I was like, thanks a lot. Like, I didn't, that was not, a, that was not a, a, a thought in my mind that I had as something that could happen. But it's true. So if I burp, please forgive me this morning. It probably won't happen. Uh, but we'll see. If you, you never know. Um, but anyways, we, uh, we get to continue today in the Gospel According to Mark. It's a series that we've been in for the last 13 weeks, which is pretty incredible. So we've been in this for literally the entire summer. And it's been really, uh, uh, I think, an important series for us as a church as we've been exploring who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what that means for us today. These are like hugely important questions that if we're not careful, our understanding of who Jesus is, we'll get it from like Instagram and TikTok and some other random person more than from God's word. And so we've been just digging into it to find out, okay, who is Jesus? And what does this actually mean for us today? And we're going to continue on that today as well. And next week, and then September 3rd, uh, we're going to be beginning a new series for our, uh, for our fall kickoff as we go into all that that is. But uh, today we're going to be uh, in Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to read to you just a couple of verses, but we're going to ho- explore a whole section today. Uh, so you can turn with me to Mark 9, and we're going to be going all the way from 9 verse 14 to 29. But just to start us off, I'm, just, I'm only going to read verses 21 to 24, uh, so you can follow along on that. Uh, verses 21 to 24, and then we'll jump into what all of this is today. This is what it says. It says, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write down this title for this message. It's called Down from the Mountain. Down from the Mountain, why don't we pray and why don't we jump into what this means for us this morning. Father, we thank you that in the middle of August, in the middle of everything that's going on in life, we can actually just pause this morning and we can come before you, we can approach you, and Father, we just ask you to speak to us today. We ask, Lord, that your word would just, uh, just speak directly to our hearts, wherever we're at, whatever our situation might be. We need to hear from you. And so we invite you to speak this morning, Lord. In your mighty name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Um, have you ever 
received like a random act of kindness? Anybody? Like maybe you've uh, been on, yeah, it's, it's awesome, isn't it? It's a really nice feeling when, you know, something you maybe weren't expecting uh, takes place and all of a sudden you receive some just random act, kind of came out of nowhere, and it was like, wow, that was really nice of that person. Victoria and I have experienced that a couple times. Uh, I remember especially when we were living in Canada, I'm Canadian, and we lived in Canada for a number of years, and sometimes we'd go out for dinner, and all of a sudden at the end of the dinner, the, the server would come and they would say, don't worry about it, the, the bills taken care of. And it was like, what are you talking about? This is awesome. How did this take place? And, you know, you'd see maybe some friend or something from across the restaurant, somebody who just decided, I'm going to take care of your dinner. And it's like, this is an awesome feeling. We've had that happen a couple times to us. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been the kind of person that you have, ex- you, you have done the random act of kindness for somebody else. Anybody? Anybody here? Hands up if that's you. Wow, humble people. This is amazing. Nobody wants to admit to that. That's good. You're very godly, very holy. Wow. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, That's also a nice feeling, to be able to extend kindness to somebody where maybe they weren't expecting it or whatever else it might be. And Victoria and I have also had the ability to do that a couple times in our life. And to be honest, that that actually almost feels better, if I can be honest. It's a great feeling to be able to just bless somebody. And... um, it's, it's wonderful, I think, to be able to go around and do that. Something I didn't even have in my notes, but I just thought of it this morning, actually, is myself and, and Carl uh, Samuelson, who some of you will know, he's sitting at the back of the room today. Uh, we were out for coffee on Thursday, and when we finished our coffee, we left the cafe, and we were leaving, and we saw two guys fighting in the street. And I'm not talking like just yelling. I'm talking like fighting hands on each other. Me and Carl, without even thinking, sprung into action, okay? We ran into the situation. This is not a lie. I just want you to know this. We ran into the situation. Uh, I let Carl go first just because, you know, I just wanted to stand back and make sure it was all good. And, uh, uh, but he, we, we, we ran in there. We kind of like pulled these guys apart from one another. They were full on fighting each other. We calmed down the situation, thank God. And we, you know, sent them on their way probably to fight later that night. I don't know. But uh, the point is we're like, this is our chance to be a little Christ-like in our city. We're like, not... Not in our city, okay? This is, take this elsewhere. Take this to North Shipping if you guys want to fight. You guys can figure it out there. Lots of fights happen in that place. Not in Lynn Shipping, okay? So the point is, I feel like that was a sort of random act of kindness by me and Carl on Thursday evening. If you guys ever have a problem, call me and Carl. We're keeping the streets clean in Lynn Shipping, uh, just so you know. We love doing these things. We love receiving random acts of kindness. It's great, wonderful good. The problem is that sometimes I think that we're tempted as followers of Jesus to read through the Gospels and see the things that Jesus is doing, the miracles that he's doing. He's going around doing all of these great things, healing people, etc. As if the whole point of that is that Jesus is just doing random acts of kindness for people. As if the whole point is that Jesus is just a nice guy and so that's what he does. And look, believe me, I definitely do think that Jesus is a nice guy, Uh, certainly. I think that Jesus is kind. Um, But there's so much more that's taking place in the Gospels than just Jesus going around doing nice things for people. And I think if we're not careful, we can become blind to that, and we can actually shrink Jesus and his mission down to him just being nice, and all of a sudden, when things go difficult for us in our lives, our faith in Jesus can falter, and it can feel like it lacks substance because we only just see Jesus as a nice guy and not the Lord of the universe. 
In fact, God's word in Jesus does not lack any substance whatsoever. The actual issue is that we lack understanding, which is part of the reason why, as a church, we open God's word week after week after week to learn from and to understand and to submit ourselves to that which is going on here. It is our desire to be formed as disciples into the image of Jesus for the sake of the world around us. And so this story that we're looking at today, I read a a portion of it at the beginning, but we're going to dive into it. The story that we're looking at today where Jesus heals a boy who's possessed by a demon, um, if we're not careful, we can miss out on what's actually going on here. And we need to understand this story in its larger context in the Gospel of Mark, and we need to understand Mark in its larger context in the story of Scripture. And so the overarching story of the Bible is something that's really important for us to consider. Not only today, by the way, but every time we read the Bible. I think it's key that we understand that the Bible, this is not just a book, but this is a library of 66 books. It's not written by just one author, but it's written by around 40 over the course of 1,500 years. Yet it's one, uh, it's one story that points us towards Jesus. And so at the beginning of this message right now, really, really quickly, just give me a couple minutes to sketch out the larger story of Scripture because I think that this is going to really help us understand what's going on in Mark's gospel right now in this story, but also every time we open our Bible and uh, read on our own, I think it's going to really help us. And so here comes a really basic overview, really quick, that I think can be helpful for you in understanding Scripture and also where we fit into Scripture today. So here we go. Three scenes for us to consider today the uh, story of Scripture. Scene one is creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a way of saying, in other words, God created everything. And when he finished his creation, he stated that it was good. And early on, it was. It was, it, it, it was humanity ruling the earth under God, um, and everything was in sync with God. Every desire was ordered in its proper place. The world was at that point as God intended for it to be. And honestly, there are echoes of this, I think, that still reverberate in our world today. There's times in our world where we feel like, yeah, there is good in the world. There is actual, uh, th- there's goodness, there's peace, there's wonder, there's joy that can take place. And we sense that. And we can feel that. It's like those moments, like little moments sitting around the, the, the dinner table with your family at Christmas time. You know that moment? And it's like things are good. Things feel, is anybody ready for Christmas yet? Who am I, where are my Christmas people at? I'm getting psyched already. I was, listen, I was scrolling through social media, particularly TikTok, and for some reason I've, I've, it's just sending me like Christmas videos, like Christmas nostalgia videos. I'm showing Victoria like I'm ready for Christmas. I'm asking her, is it too early to start listening to Christmas music? And the answer is yes, it's too early to start, okay? It is too early. If you're listening, there's something wrong with you. I want you to know that. Uh, but it's gonna be great. I can't wait for that. There's those beautiful moments of life that we have or, or moments of life where you're, where you're with friends around a table, uh, your mouths are full of good food and you have great community and friendship taking place. It's a wonderful thing, or standing out and looking at a a beautiful view in nature. Uh, Last week, Victoria and I, and a number of others uh, from church, actually, we were in Östersund uh, for the wedding of uh, two people in our church, Ida and Gabriel. And, um, you know, I remember standing out there 
Uh, we were on this little island up in the northern part of Sweden, or kind of the halfway mark of Sweden. But we were there, and the sun was setting. It was looking out over these, uh, this beautiful lake, over these rolling hills. Uh, it was a beautiful moment. It was like Sweden at its best. It was like a little glimpse of the Garden of Eden right on earth. I like to call it the Garden of Sweden. Uh, that's what I refer to it as. But it was like, wow, God is good. Look at this creation. It's an incredible thing. And all of life used to be that way. But we don't live in the garden anymore. Because scene two, decreation, is where we're at now. Humanity joins Satan and who was and is an evil spiritual being in rebellion to God. And as a result, sin infected humanity and it's been wreaking havoc ever since. And now, as a result of this, humanity is out of sync with God and with one another, which is why today we live in a world that is so often marked by suffering and injustice. Injustice and suffering is the exact opposite of the peace, the shalom, the peace that God created and was present in the garden. The world is not as it should be. And that's not news to any one of us. I think every single one of us knows and can relate and feels deeply that things are not quite as they should be in the world. There's something that's out of order. Every single one of us longs for something deep down that is in its proper place where these things are, are, are not prevalent as they are right now. We currently live in a world that is in many ways an anti-Eden, a world marked by disorder. But scene three... There is recreation. All is not lost. As Christians, we have a hope that we know where things are going. The good news, or the word the gospel, as we've been working with, which means good news, is that there is recreation. Because God called a man named Abraham, and in Genesis 18, we read that this is what God said to Abraham. Let's read together. Genesis 18, verse 18 says this. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Notice that language, doing what is right and just. These are two words that appear all over scripture. And this is what Abraham is called to do, righteousness and justice, to partner with God for the restoration of the world. Abraham, of course, is the father of Israel, the nation of Israel, and this job description of doing righteousness and justice was passed on to Israel as a whole. They were to image or to show off God's good character to the entire world so that other nations would look at Israel and in turn would worship God because of their witness and example. Israel was to do what was right and what was just. However, do they do a good job of that? No, they don't. Well, sometimes they do, but overall, it was a bit of a failure on the part of Israel, especially when it came to justice. If you read the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets, part of the Bible that we don't read all that often, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, probably. Um, but you'll see that the prophets, people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth, they call out Israel again and again and again and again for worshiping false gods and for oppressing people. 
Instead of worshiping God, they made gods that they wanted to worship. And generally, these gods were kind of made in the image of the self as opposed to worshiping God. And instead of working for justice, we see time and again they're oppressing the poor. Look at this indictment from God to Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. God says this through the prophet. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. I mean, this is pretty clear language. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. From the prophet Micah, God outlines what it means to be his people. And I love this summary statement in Micah. It's so good. Micah 6 verse 8 says this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But still, Israel doesn't get it. And so the prophets begin to speak of a Messiah, an anointed one, a king, somebody who would come to truly do what Israel is unable to do, to enact justice and righteousness. And so fast forward to Jesus. He is the embodiment of the Old Testament prophecies of a coming king, one who would come to bring justice and righteousness to the world. And so Jesus comes, and who does he start spending most of his time with? He spends most of his time with those who are in need of some justice. Time and again, we see that he's with the oppressed, the sick, and the vulnerable. And Jesus goes around doing so much more than just random acts of kindness and good deeds. Because what Jesus does is put into motion his work of healing and restoration of the entire world. First, he does it for individuals. But then, as you read through the story of Scripture, by the end in the book of Revelation, there is healing and restoration for the entire cosmos, a world where there is no injustice, no disease, no pain, no suffering, no death, a world that's totally saturated in the presence of God. It's a return to the Garden of Eden or life as God intended it to be in the first place. And here in Mark's gospel that we have been reading through all summer long, we read about these beginning steps, this beginning inbreaking of God's kingdom, his rule, his reign into our world today, one story at a time, through one miracle at a time, through one healing at a time, and all of it taking place through Jesus. And when we understand that what's happening here is more than Jesus just going around being nice to people, but he is establishing his kingdom on earth, the restoration of all things. And when we understand that he has left us as his followers and his church to do the job of continuing on in this work today, it changes how we read scripture. Changes what we're called to do changes uh, our witness to a world that is still marked partially by suffering and by sickness. And so with that in mind, with that understanding laid out, let's take a look at this passage of scripture in Mark and see what it means for us today and how we need to live our lives. So turn with me again, if you're not there already, to Mark 9, verse 14. 
We're going to go through this a line at a time, and then we're going to bring some application to ourselves today as well. Um, But I think it's important that we hear what Scripture has to say to us today and that we actually are humble enough to allow it to shape and change us and kind of get the self out of the way and say, God, what do you have for us today? Mark 9, verse 14, it says this. Here's the story. It says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Now, a little context. Just before this passage we're reading today, Jesus has been on a mountain, Mount Tabor. Uh, He's been in the presence of God the Father. It's this incredible event that takes place called the Transfiguration. It's uh, amazing to see what happened. Peter, James, and John, his disciples were there. It's this amazing moment where God once again declares and affirms that Jesus is his son. Uh, It's this moment where these three disciples see uh, the transfigured or like It's like a a pre-image of God, of Jesus in all his glorified, resurrected reality. And they get like a sneak peek. It's like the trailer for the movie that they get to see. And it's a true spiritual mountaintop experience for these guys. It does not get any better than this. Like sometimes we feel as Christians, we've got like, oh, that was a mountaintop experience for me. It's like, it's nothing compared to this moment that these disciples experience. But... They come back down from the mountain, back to reality. And what do they find? All the other disciples are arguing amongst themselves and amongst the teachers of the law. There's actually a painting by uh, the Renaissance painter Raphael. It's his most famous painting. You can put it up on the screen, although it's going to be small. I'm sorry, but maybe you'll be able to see some of this painting. And this is his most famous painting. And I think it does a pretty good job illuminating this scene and this difference between the mountaintop experience and coming down from the mountain. Of course, we have on the mountaintop, Jesus is this beautiful, incredible moment, uh, wonderful. We've got Moses and Elijah beside him. We've got the three disciples. And then underneath is the scene that's taking place back in reality. You could say back in everyday life. And I don't know, maybe you feel a little bit similar to this. Maybe you feel like this going back, uh, going back to work after vacation or something, right? You're like, I got to come down from the beautiful mountain of vacation and strawberries and sunshine and, you know, Swedish summer, and I have to go back into the hell that is work, right? Uh, I'm just kidding. It might not, it, you might enjoy your job. Wonderful. That's great. Um, but maybe you feel like that or you have felt that way in life at one point or another. I don't know. Point is, Jesus comes down and he finds his disciples engaged in an argument about the Torah or the Hebrew scripture. What is it that they're arguing about? Keep reading, verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So there's this boy who's possessed by an evil spirit or a a demon. And if you're new to Christianity, a demon is essentially an invisible but real and evil spiritual being who's at war with God. And also, if you're new to all this, this might be the point where you're like, yeah, that's weird. I'm out of here, (laughs) okay? I understand 
that this is weird. To be honest, I'm not new to all of this, and I read through scripture, and I come across passages like this, and I think, yeah, this is weird. This is strange. This is hard to believe. This is hard to understand. This sounds a little bit spooky. This sounds a little bit whatever. And that's why I actually think it's good every now and then to just preach through books of the Bible because uh, we can't ignore these parts of Scripture either. We can't just skip over them because it makes us uncomfortable as modern people. And so we can try to reason with our modern minds and explain these parts of Scripture away. And we can say, well, this boy was just dealing with epilepsy. It certainly sounds like that. And perhaps that's what it was. But that doesn't mean that uh, at the same time that there wasn't a real evil spiritual being that is affecting him. And the point is that uh, scripture says that this is something that's demonic and we have to reckon with that fact as modern people. Um, And the disciples were unable to expel this demon, which is really weird because just a chapter or two before, the disciples were going all over the place and they were expelling demons from people. It's going on again and again, but this time they were powerless and they were unable. What's going on? Jesus says, verse 19, you unbelieving generation. How, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And we can read this and it's like, wow, Jesus sounds a little, sounds a little ticked off here, to be honest. It's like he's a little annoyed with these guys. And he uses that term, you unbelieving generation. I spoke about that a few weeks ago. This was a term used to refer to rebellious Israel wandering around in the desert. What's going on? Why is Jesus a little bit upset? How long shall I stay with you? How long? It's not that Jesus is like, I got to get out of here. But really, Jesus is understanding that his time on earth is coming to a close. The cross is drawing near. And he's like, come on, guys, you need to get this. You need to understand this. You guys are my disciples. It's going to be your job to carry on the work that I am starting right now. Verse 20 says, so they brought him. So they Uh, brought him, the boy. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How many people know that sometimes things get worse before they get better? Have you ever experienced that before? Have you ever had that? You bring your problem to Jesus and the pain, the suffering, whatever it is, you start to pray and it gets worse? Like, Jesus, what's, (laughs) what's the deal? You're here, I've brought it to you, and now it feels like what I'm going through is like I'm foaming at the mouth, and I'm suffering even more than I was before. What's happening? Just wait, because it does get better. Verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Verse 23, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. If you can, it's like Jesus is drawing out the faith of this man in this moment. Everything is possible for one who believes. Now, this doesn't mean that our faith can command God to do what we want him to do. As if like, oh, we just have to just have enough faith and, you know, you can just go do like any crazy thing as if uh, God is some sort of genie who just like fulfills our wishes whenever we want him to. If we can just reach some certain faith level or something like that. What this is referencing here is what it means is that as followers of Jesus, we do need to understand that God's power is limitless 
And according to his will, not our will, but according to his will, he can do anything. And the one who believes, that is us, those who petition, those who ask of Jesus, we do need to possess, I think, an aggressive faith in Jesus, a bold faith in Jesus. We see all through Mark's gospel that bold faith is a characteristic of all these people who approach Jesus in, his, in this gospel. Verse 24 says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I think in this moment, this father is speaking for all of us. He's going through this mixture of crisis and faith and doubt, and it's all mixed up into one. I do believe, dot, 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 (laughs) mostly. Jesus, help me believe. I mean, the amount of times, if I can be honest, that I've prayed this prayer in my life. Jesus, I do believe, Uh, mostly. (laughs) But Jesus, you're going to have to help me because this feels like an impossible situation. And yeah, I do believe, but Lord, help me overcome this unbelief because the reality is I still doubt. The reality is my humanity is trying to get in the way. The reality is my modern mind still says this feels ridiculous to even pray or ask you for anything. Lord, help me. There's been times in my life where I've had to do this like on a daily, like a daily basis. Lord, I believe in you, but help me today overcome my unbelief because it's not easy. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed, uh, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. The original language here, more literally translated, is that Jesus raised him or resurrected him. It's like another signpost that marks the resurrection power of Jesus that he is unleashing in the world. Verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. Now, this uh, implies that they had failed because they had not prayed. The disciples were too busy arguing amongst themselves and amongst their opponents (laughs) to stop and pray. Jesus says, this can only come out by prayer. But what's actually strange about this passage is that Jesus doesn't pray in this moment to drive out this, this evil spirit. Jesus doesn't offer up a prayer in this scene, which is strange because he is teaching them this kind can only come out by prayer. So what's going on? I think the prayer that Jesus has in mind here is not some sort of magical phrase that you you can just say uh, to cast out demons. Rather, he's referencing a close and enduring and intimate, perpetual, ongoing relationship with God. Today, we can learn from this. We can learn what it means to follow Jesus, I think, through what's going on in this story today. We can learn from the negative example of the disciples here, what happens to those who neglect prayer and just try to operate on their own strength. And really, I think this is not even so much a story only about a demon being cast out, 
though it is that. But I think in the bigger picture, this is a story that stresses the necessity of prayer and faith and complete dependence on God. And so that's the story as we read it. And there are some things that I think are important for us to reflect on as to how it affects our life here and today. And so I want us to pay attention to the failure of the disciples and to the desperation of the boy's father. And I think the key moments in this passage are Jesus' statements that everything is possible for one who believes and that this kind can only come out by prayer. And really this whole passage, when we see the disciples in this, it shows us that we're so similar to the disciples today. It's like a a failure uh, sandwich that's going on. The disciples fail at the beginning, uh, and then the father is like squeezed in the middle, uh, and he's got this faith, this weak faith, but it's faith nonetheless. And then the disciples are are, uh, talking about their failure at the end, and we see this, and it's like, yeah, we often fail today as well, don't we? We do this so often. It's like so often we're just eager to engage in debates about faith with others. And we we become undisciplined when it comes to our prayer life. And we'd rather just learn a quick, easy one, two, three technique uh, to, to be able to enhance our faith rather than actually walk closely and intimately and submissively to Jesus day after day. And so a couple lessons for us to draw here today. First is this. It's a lesson that has to do with failure and prayer. Failure and prayer. If you're anything like me, you probably absolutely prefer to have a mountaintop experience with God, don't you? It's like we love that. I know a lot of Christians that seek that out and jump from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop and never actually set foot in the real world. And I don't necessarily think that that's good either. But it's always more attractive to be up on the mountaintop high spiritual experience with Jesus than it is to be in the chaotic reality of everyday life and interpersonal conflict and all of those things, the messiness of it all. But whether we like it or not, following Jesus means answering his call to go down from the mountain to those places where the cries of help are the loudest because it's in those places that our faith is actually put into practice. It's in those places that we take what we learn on the mountain and we actually start to walk it out. You know, I love attending church conferences, uh, gatherings of big people. It's like a charged atmosphere. It's a beautiful thing. Encouraging sermons, powerful worship together. It's great. I've been attending these types of conferences almost yearly for the last 20 years of my life where we gather 30, 40, 50,000 people together. It's a beautiful thing, and I love doing it. I've been a part of them. I, it's been wonderful. When I was in youth group at, back in Canada, my youth in my city, we hosted a youth conference every year where over 3,000 youth would come every single year. It was amazing. I loved it. We had such a great time. It's fantastic. But at some point, the conference ended, and real life began. And it was in those places of real life, sort of slogging through the trenches of life with people outside the church, all of this different stuff, where a sense of failure can feel all too common for us as Christians. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you'll feel this way tomorrow. You'll go to work and you just feel like your faith is something that you are constantly failing at. Like you just can't, you can't just get, like... 
you're having a hard time just landing in the right rhythm, being able to put one foot in front of the other. And failure may feel and seem like a bad thing, and sometimes it is, but depending on how we react, I think that it can be a positive experience and a teaching moment for us. I think that failure is one of life's mechanisms that can, if we let it, cause us to recognize our ultimate dependence on God. But of course, failure can have negative results. It can lead to arguments. We might try to place the blame on others rather than taking responsibility uh, ourselves. The disciples fell into this trap. They were fighting with their opponents while a helpless father stood by, agonizing and desperate for his suffering son. And I think all too often as Christians, we're too much like the disciples that find ourselves in endless debates with one another while an agonizing and helpless world stands by, desperate for the message of Jesus. And while we spend our time sometimes debating who is right and who is wrong and who is at fault, the world stands by in the grip of evil. And I think that most people in a tough situation, they actually don't care about our disputes over fine points of theological doctrine. They need help. Now, please, don't think or imagine for a moment that that means that I don't think theological doctrine is important. If you've been a part of our church for more than two weeks, you know that that's something that we value here highly. And I think that what we believe about Scripture and rightly interpreting and applying and believing Scripture is that which motivates us to be an effective witness of Jesus to the world. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that sometimes we spend so much time debating who's right and wrong that we totally miss the purpose for which Jesus has called us to. In the midst of all our failures, even when we fail in those ways, we do need to remember that it's Jesus who saves and not us. We need to remember this father says to Jesus, I brought you my son, and Jesus says, bring the boy to me. The good news of Christ draws people who are in pain. And they place their trust in Jesus, not in us. And yet, against all odds, God still chooses to work through us as broken vessels that deliver his message to the world. And so sometimes we stumble forward, but every failure can be a fall forward into the arms of a loving and gracious God who picks us up, who dusts us off, and who encourages us to keep going and to keep being his witnesses in the world around us. But if we want to be able to keep going and to effectively be witnesses for Jesus in this world, we need to establish prayer as a priority in our lives. The main failure of the disciples in this passage is clear in the final scene. It was insufficient prayer. Now again, the prayer that Jesus has in mind is not just an empty religious exercise. It's not just saying empty words or a magic formula. Jesus is referring to a life of complete and total total dependence on him. A life of prayer goes hand in hand with effective ministry and faithful Christian living. Let's not be people that say on a Sunday, God, use me to reach the world. God, I want to be used by you to reach the world. And then we go home and we neglect prayer, we neglect God, and we miss the moments and the opportunities of kingdom impact that come our way week after week, moment by moment, to make God's name known because we're just not depending on him in our lives. Christianity is not a nine-to-five thing. Christianity is not a couple hours on a Sunday morning. Christianity means following Jesus on his way and in his way, whatever may come, and actually taking his name to this world. 
And I think it's a lesson that we need to learn today. The disciples needed to learn from their emptiness and their failure in this situation. It was an opportunity for them to remember that they must rely entirely on God. I wonder today, do you rely entirely on God? Are you willing to learn from your failures and that they might cause you to grow? What's your prayer life look like? Is it kind of empty words or... Or is it a lifestyle of intimacy and dependency on God? You'd wake up every day and say, God, I long to be with you today. Secondly, and lastly, I think this story shows us something about desperation and faith. In this story, we read about a desperate father who's struggling with his faith. And I think that the father in this story represents so many of us here today who are facing impossible situations. Perhaps you're here today and you're a parent. And maybe you've had to watch your child suffer from a disease, a sickness, an addiction. Maybe they're far from God and they're just living at the mercy of the world. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you're desperate. Maybe you're here today and the situation that you face is one of bitterness, fear, frustration. You don't know where to turn for help in your life. You're scared. You don't know what the future looks like. You don't know how you can get through. Maybe it feels like that's just taking hold of your life or your family or your friend. I don't know. It's in these moments that our faith is challenged. It's in those times where our hope just seems to be broken on the rocky shores of hardship. The father in this story is like that. It's almost like he's given up all hope. And then Jesus steps into the story. (laughs) Everything changes when Jesus steps into the story. Jesus encourages him to have faith, and it changes everything. Where's your faith at today? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he has the power to help you in an impossible situation? I want you to know today that he can. But if we want to have this kind of faith, there's a couple things that we need to consider. The first is this. Faith requires humble trust. The father comes to Jesus in humility. He doesn't come with some sort of, some sort of spiritual swagger. He doesn't come to Jesus as if, he's some, as if this man is somebody, I got all the answers, Jesus. I just need you to do the miracle. He doesn't come to try and impress Jesus with all of his spiritual knowledge or his perfect church attendance or his perfect giving record. He doesn't fake his trust. Instead, he turns his empty hands to God and asks for God to fill them. This man shows that he expects everything from God, but nothing from his own power. And Jesus is not put off by the one who says, I believe, but I'm not certain of it. Help my unbelief. Maybe you're here today, and maybe you are struggling to believe. Maybe you're trying to overcome or to cover up that struggling belief by trying to impress Jesus by all kinds of outward acts that just try and show how faithful you are. Maybe you're trying to, maybe you're trying to show your friends or people in church like, oh, look at me, I've got nothing wrong in my life because look at all of what I do. Look at how good I am as a person. And outwardly, you're just trying to fake it. Just hit the pause button for a moment. It's okay to throw your hands up and say, Lord, I want to believe, but I am struggling right now. Help me through my doubts. Help me to trust in you. The other thing we need to consider is that we sometimes throw out the phrase, just have faith. 
a little too casually. Someone's going through a tragedy, and we say, I'll just have faith. (laughs) And I get it. Sometimes we don't know what else to say. Just have faith. But it's okay to admit that living out our faith is not always an easy thing to do. And it's especially hard in the midst of tragedy. Like, let's, can we be real in church for a moment? Is that okay? Can we just admit that that's the case? Can we admit that sometimes, like, we don't have to come to church and just pretend to be perfect and have our lives totally and completely in order and just be these fake, shiny, plastic Christians that really uh, can't relate to a world that is experiencing these things? And we go to work and people are like, I want nothing to do with you because you don't even feel like a real person. I think it's more powerful to be able to admit, yeah, things are tough but I still believe that God's good, even in the midst of that. And I'm holding on to the hope that is in his name. And I see that a a lack of suffering doesn't automatically mean that God is with me more than when I am suffering. I think that God is with us in our moments of suffering. And there's this tension between faith and between doubt that we have to navigate. And that's okay. But let's have a heart that says, God, help me to overcome my unbelief. Bible teacher D.L. Moody, he once said that there are three kinds of faith. He said there's struggling faith, like a man in deep water, desperately swimming. There's clinging faith, like a man holding on to the side of a boat for dear life. And then there's resting faith, like a man safely in the boat and able to reach out and help others get in. Many people, many of us here today, and I know that this is true because I've sat with so many people here today, have a struggling faith right now where it feels like you're in deep water and you desperately need somebody to throw you a lifeline. Sometimes we move back and forth between these types of faith like all in the same day. It can happen. I think that the Gospel of Mark And through this story, that it can help us toward a resting faith where we find ourselves secure in the boat and able to help others. But it shows us that this resting faith can only come by trusting Jesus, by praying, by asking for his help to overcome our unbelief. And so as the worship team comes back up and we're about to finish, let me just Let me just close by saying this. Um, We're about to pray, and we're going to take a moment and pray for some people here this morning. But let me ask you this. Where are you at today when it comes to your faith? Are you floating desperately in the waters of life, and you just don't know what you're going to do, and it's just like you're, you're totally struggling? Maybe today you're desperate, and you're clinging to the boat, and you're like, someone's got to drag me in because I'm about to fall back into what I was just in. Or are you in the boat today. Maybe you're here today and you feel like a failure and you feel like your prayer life is lacking. I want to encourage you today, climb into the boat. There's people here we want to help you in. Maybe you're desperate today and I want you to know that Jesus is the lifeline that you're looking for. He sees you and he knows you. Maybe you've come out of a great summer or maybe you've come out of a terrible summer. Maybe you're excited and you're anticipating all that this autumn is going to bring in your life or maybe you are filled with anxiety like you never have been before and 
you're freaked out about going into school, about going into life, getting back to work. You don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know where you're at. But I do want you to know that Jesus is with you in the midst of all of it. and He is good. And in your desperation, I just want to encourage you, call out to him. Say, Lord, I believe. <laughs> and even when it's hard to believe, say, Jesus, help me with my unbelief. I believe that he's with you. And I believe that we can learn from this. And in doing so, I think that we can go out from church and whatever mountaintop experience we have, and we can go to those places where the cries are loud, and we can help a whole bunch of others pull themselves into the boat of resting faith where they can trust in Jesus. They can go forward into all that he has for them.